Well, we will be in Mark chapter 2 this morning. Excellent. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for a couple of months now. And this morning as we start, I want to explain something to you about the way that we are going about this particular book study. Um, You may have noticed that preaching through the Gospel like this... I'm going to say this, and then I'll explain what I mean. It doesn't tend to give you a lot of immensely practical sermons. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. Look at today's title. (laughs) Okay, if you're looking for a boots on the ground, practical, this is what you do this week to be a better person, to have a better time at work, to be a better parent, all of that like David, but better, is if we put that on the marquee outside on the sign and advertise that as the sermon title, I'm just not sure a lot of people would come flocking in to hear um, <laughs> to hear a message like this. People aren't going to see that and think, wow, that sounds like a message that will really change my life this week, you know, <laughs> when they see that. And I think that maybe uh, people will have that reaction when they see this title and maybe Many Christians would have that reaction because a lot of us really don't process through how life change actually happens. How is it that you become a different person in five or ten years? How do you put on new habits? How do you think differently about the world and see things differently so that your life changes? How does that actually happen in your life. We tend to think that life change happens by someone giving us a list of items to do, and then we sort of tick off those items as we do them, and then we become a different person. And that's why people are hungry for practical sermons. Now, of course, the Word of God is always practical, but they're hungry for sermons that will give them a list of to-do items and describe to you the way to fix your life this week. And that's, that's not what we're going to necessarily get out of the book of Mark. Now, I hope this is immensely practical to you. But the reason so much of our study in the book of Mark has been absent of those to-do lists and items like you may typically see is because changed living doesn't happen through getting a list of to-do items and working on it. I'm convinced that true change will happen in your life when you receive good news and not just good advice. To-do lists are often good advice for us. Here's some things to do to make your life better. But when you receive news, good news, world-changing news, man, that's when your life takes on a different trajectory. That's when you begin to see the world differently. That's when you begin to see yourself differently. One of my favorite books that I've ever read is called Good News for Anxious Christians. And the subtitle is 10 Practical Things You Don't Have to Do. It's wonderful. Who writes a book about Christian living and tells you things you don't have to do? It's fantastic. And this is one of the quotes from that book I wanted to share with you this morning. I'll read it to you if you can't. Make out the letters on the screen. He says, My contention is that the kind of sermon that gives us real help living the Christian life is not about us, but about Christ. It does not tell us what to do, but what Christ does. 
It tells us the story of who he is and what he has done for us in our salvation. He is the eternal son of God who came down from heaven, the baby born of the Virgin Mary, the rabbi from Galilee who taught in parables, went to Jerusalem where he died on a cross under Pontius Pilate, then rose from the dead on the third day and ascended to sit on the right hand at the right hand of the father, where he now intercedes for us and pours out his spirit upon his body and who will come again in glory as judge of all nations and king of creation. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And when you start to inhabit that story and think along those lines, that's when you begin to change as a person. So this morning and every Sunday morning, slowly but surely, we gather together as citizens of Christ's kingdom, and we come here to hear news, good news about who he is and what he has done. And over time, hearing that news week in and week out and reading your Bible during the week and practicing spiritual disciplines, and taking the Lord's Supper together. Over time, those things will change us. And as you do those things regularly, and as you hear news about Christ's kingdom in five years, you'll look back and go, I am a different person. My first reaction to a situation is different. I'm more gentle. I'm more loving. I'm filled with peace now. And I still struggle, but man, I am a different person. And that happens through hearing good news week in and week out, and not just good advice. So in our story for today, Mark chapter 2, if you're not there yet, you can turn there. We're going to find good news about Jesus, and we're going to find that news as Jesus is compared to an Old Testament character. And this comparison is going to help us grasp who Christ is better. So today, we're going to see two qualities of Christ. We're going to talk about him, two qualities of Christ that we discover through the connection between Jesus and David, right? So there's a connection between Jesus and David, and we're going to examine that connection, and we're going to see two qualities of Christ. And I think as you see these qualities, it'll be good news to you, and over time, begin to change you. So the first one of these is that Jesus is like David in his identity, all right? He's like David in his identity, verses 23 to 26 in Mark chapter 2. So if you've been with us, or even if you haven't, we've been studying Mark 2, and this series uh, in Mark 2 is called Kingdom Conflict. You may have seen the sign as you came in. The reason for that is because there are five stories all in a row. Mark arranged them this way in the gospel in order to show us conflict between Jesus and various groups of people. And he wanted to do this so that we would learn about Christ and who he is as we see him in conflict with religious leaders, with other people. So last time in Mark 2, verses 18 to 22, we saw, this was a couple weeks ago, we saw the people ask Jesus about his disciples and why they don't fast. And that gave us an opportunity to gaze at the person of Christ and discover who he is. This time, we get another question about the disciples. Seems like these guys are always bringing up issues for Jesus. And so we get this other question about his disciples. And again, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to explain more who he is and to teach more about his kingdom and what his work looks like. So look at verse 23, Mark chapter 2. One Sabbath... He was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So 
If you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, maybe in one sitting, you notice that several times in this Gospel, events take place on the Sabbath. Um, and, And this is no exception to that. This happens here. We've already seen several events take place on the Sabbath day, and that's going to continue throughout the entire Gospel of Mark. Now, we'll talk about in just a minute why it's so significant that these events take place on the Sabbath, but I just want you to note that here at the beginning. And what we find in verse 23, it's pretty self-explanatory. The disciples are going through the grain fields, and they're plucking off heads of grain. It must have been close to harvest time, and they're apparently rubbing them together and eating the heads of grain to get a little bit of sustenance on the Sabbath. So that's kind of the setting. Look at verse 24. And the Pharisees were saying to him, to Jesus, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now. I don't know what the situation is here. I don't, I don't know if the, the Pharisees were hiding in the grain fields, you know, incognito, waiting for Jesus and his disciples to come rolling through and to, ah, gotcha, guys are doing something you're not supposed to on the Sabbath. I, I don't know why they noticed this or saw this. Perhaps they're just following them. Maybe there's a crowd of people following them. That would make sense. But they find this happening and they confront Jesus about what his disciples are doing here. Now, as you read this, there's such a cultural difference between this time period and us and this sort of action. I mean, I don't think many of you have walked through grain fields, plucked them, and eaten from them in the last few months. And even just the whole idea of the Sabbath, there's just a lot of of cultural distance between us and them. And so when we read this here, it really sounds like the Pharisees are being pretty nitpicky about what's going on here. It's like, come on, guys. I mean, what's the big deal with what they're doing here? We need to try to understand what would bring them to ask a question like this. Why are they upset? Why are they identifying this as a problem? We want to understand why it's a big deal to them. Well, if you know anything about your Old Testament and about the Jews, you know that the Sabbath was a really, really big deal to them. And this was not unusual or unexpected for a Jewish person to hold the Sabbath day in very, very high regard. If you're familiar at all with the Ten Commandments, you know that remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy is one of the Ten Commandments. And in fact, I don't know if you knew this or not, it's the longest of the Ten Commandments. It has the most explanation out of the ten. And it doesn't mean maybe it's the most important, but it's up there. It's a significant command for God's people to keep there in the Ten Commandments. Now, why why is this so important? Why did God include this in those Ten Commandments? Why does he make such a big deal about this? Well, the reality is, is that keeping the Sabbath is not first mentioned in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. It goes all the way back to the order of creation in the first chapters of Genesis. This is in the Ten Commandments. He ties it back to creation. For in six days, this is why you have to keep the Sabbath, he says to the Jews. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so the pattern for working six days and then resting on the seventh day was ordered in creation. It was rooted in creation. This was something that God started from the very beginning and expected his people to reflect. They took this very seriously. Listen to God 
explain the results of not keeping the Sabbath. A couple of things to note here. Exodus 31, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So a couple of things to notice here about this verse. Israel's supposed to follow this pattern of working and then resting on the Sabbath. And there were serious consequences for them if they didn't keep this. And another thing to notice about this, beyond the consequences, the, the last part of this is, whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. This was one of the ways that you were identified as a Jew. This was important to Jews because this marked them out as the covenant people of God. This is one of the things that made the Jewish people different from the cultures around them. They kept the Sabbath. They wouldn't do work on the Sabbath. This was a sign that you were a part of God's covenant with his people in Israel. So think of circumcision and the Sabbath day as kind of the two big pieces for a Jewish person. The boys had to be circumcised. They valued that as an identity marker. And the Sabbath was equally as important as a marker of who was in and who was out of the covenant, who trusted in God in the covenant. So with that background here, the Pharisees are, are believing that the, the disciples are doing something that they should not be doing. I mean, the way they phrase it here, they're doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And they go to Jesus because they know as the rabbi or as the teacher, he's ultimately the one who's responsible for what his disciples are doing. I mean, look what they say in verse 24. Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The Sabbath was supposed to be a ceasing of work, right? You weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. And apparently the Pharisees believe that Christ's disciples are working. And specifically, they believe that they are harvesting. In Exodus, the Lord makes it very clear that the Sabbath command even applies to the time of harvest. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Now, why would he say specifically during plowing and harvest time? Well, you can imagine... If it's harvest time, the, the fruit or the grain is ripe and it needs to be picked and it's the sixth day and the Sabbath is coming and you're not supposed to work, what are you going to do? You're going to obey God? You're going to keep his commands and trust him? Or are you going to ignore it and you're going to go out and violate the Sabbath because you feel like you need to get the grain in? And so he specifically identifies not harvesting on the Sabbath. And so... The Pharisees interpret the disciples' actions as a disdain for the Sabbath. They're not interested in keeping the commands that God made clear in the Old Testament. And so they ask about it. But all of that forms the background here for how Jesus answers this question. And I love, I love how Christ answers questions in the Gospel of Mark. It's so unique. He doesn't really ever hit it head on. But he, he turns the attention to where it needs to be. And this is where the comparison to David begins. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him. Verse 26, How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence 
which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Now, we're not going to go back for time's sake this morning and read the story that Jesus is referring to. If you want to read it later, it's in 1 Samuel 21. But I want you to notice what Jesus does here. So the Pharisees are interpreting this action as, a, as harvesting, as a violation of the Sabbath. But Jesus doesn't really engage them in a discussion of whether this is harvesting or not. Or whether this is a violation of the Sabbath or not. He doesn't go there. He doesn't get into the details of what's happening here, whether it's a violation of the law or not. Instead, what he does is he starts to talk about David. He's specifically focusing on David and something he did. I mean, look how he starts it in verse 25. Have you never read what David did? And what he's doing here is he's inviting a comparison between himself and David. He wants them to put him himself and David together. He wants them to think of them together. Jesus wants them to think, well, yes, David technically did do something that was prohibited. He went in and got this bread that he wasn't supposed to. And Jesus even says here, it's not lawful for any but the priest to eat. David technically did do something like that. But here's the thing. Scripture treats this action by David as warranted, as okay in this situation, because of who David was. He was the anointed king. He was in a tough spot. And so Scripture treats this as it's not a problem there because of who David was. So Jesus doesn't argue with them about specifics. He doesn't try to debate them on what was what. Instead, he says, David did this. And he wants them to make that connection between he and David. Now, throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is compared to David over and over again. This is something you need to see. Mark 10, 47, uh, the blind man, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David. He's making a connection. You're a descendant of David there. Have mercy on me. A few chapters later, the triumphal entry, Mark 11. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And then there's this great passage in Mark 12 where Jesus is debating with the scribes and Pharisees. And he refers them back to this passage of scripture where David is writing about the future Messiah. So David himself is saying, there's going to come one in my line who's going to be my Lord. And Jesus says, how can that be? And the implication is to the Pharisees, that's who I am, but they don't get it. And so Jesus makes this comparison here between himself and David as the future Messiah. And the Old Testament consistently links the future Messiah to David. One passage you're very familiar with. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so here's... Here's what Jesus' response is essentially saying to them. He tells this story about David so that the Pharisees will go, 
Yes, David did do that, but you're no David. It's like where I went to seminary, a young preacher boy would come in and say, well, John MacArthur did this. Well, you're no John MacArthur. (laughs) And Jesus here wants them to go, but you're no David. And he'll go, you're right. You're right. I'm like David. I'm in his line, but I'm better. I have more authority than he does. The implication of this is if David could do this, if there was an exception for David in this circumstance, then of course I can allow my disciples to do this because of who I am. David was a king. Jesus was like David as a king, but he was the true and final king. He was better. And that's our second point. He's like David in his identity. Jesus invites that comparison there, but he's better than David in his authority. And that's what we get to in verses 27 and 28. And in these two verses, he invites the comparison. Then in these two verses, he gives us two principles. And these sort of explain his authority. And this will help us to understand how he's interpreting what David did in the Old Testament. I wanted you to first see that comparison there and let that rest on you. And then Christ gets to, okay, why, why was David able to do that? Here's how you properly interpret the Sabbath day. Look at verse 27. This is the first of those two principles. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, this is where the Pharisees had gone wrong. They were pinning these expectations on the disciples and dealing with them, not according to the true intent of the law here. If essentially what had happened is they had added extra layers on top of the law and regulations and all of that, and they were failing to uphold the real core principles of the law. Uh, let me show you. Jesus accuses them of this in Matthew 23. Look what he says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Keep the Sabbath, but understand how the Sabbath is meant to be used. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus doesn't say to the Pharisees, you guys are idiots. We don't have to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy anymore. It's not what he says to them. But he does say that their starting point was wrong. They were starting in the wrong place. They weren't remembering the true purpose and intent of God's command. Another author, well, let me show you this first. This is the true intent. And then we'll get to this quote that explains it. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant, woman, and the alien, look at this, may be refreshed. Why did God give them the Sabbath? It wasn't to be a burden. It wasn't to be restrictive. There were guidelines that they had to keep, but it was for this purpose. It was to do them good. It was so that they, it was so that they would be refreshed. One commentator said this, the Sabbath is God's blessing, not a cramping and life-denying constraint, not a rigid and arbitrary set of rules to be obeyed. That's how God's commands function. Now, let's sort of step away from Mark 2 for a second. And let's apply this principle to our lives for a moment. 
I think we get the wrong starting point many times when we think about God's, God's word. God's commands are not intended to be burdensome for us. And we ought to not make them heavy and overpowering on people. One of the ways to keep God's commands from being burdensome is to remember this principle. God only commands us things that are for our good and our refreshment. Now, that might sound crazy to you, but that's because we so often get sucked into the mindset of the world and we think of God's commands wrongly. We start at the wrong point. God is good, and he gives us commands. He gave the Jews this command of the Sabbath, not as a way of restricting their freedom, but as a way of blessing them and of doing them good and of refreshing them. And that is true of all biblical commands and ethical standards, all of them across the board. Let me give you one example, and I'm going to talk this through with you. Why does God give us the sexual ethic that he does in Scripture? Why does God command one man, one woman, monogamy for life, for sexuality? Well, the culture around you presents that as outdated, as restrictive. But God's guidelines on sexuality actually free us to love and to experience long-term stability rather than being tossed about with every whim of our own desire to this and this and this and everywhere. No, God's commands give us the freedom to be in a long-term stable relationship. Here's, Here's the difference between God's purpose and commands and the way the culture thinks about it. The culture is trying to get us to think of freedom only in terms of freedom from, okay? You want freedom from all these things. Freedom is primarily a breaking of shackles and being able to do whatever you want with your desires. Freedom from the monogamy of marriage. Freedom from commitment. Biblical freedom is freedom to. It's freedom that is aimed in a direction in order to give us something good. That we wouldn't otherwise have if we chased our desires down all the time, our sinful desires. It's freedom to experience something that you cannot have without guidelines and commitment in place. Think of it this way. You will never experience, I will never experience, the freedom to run a marathon without guidelines in place In order to help you get to that point. I don't have the freedom to do that right now. I would die in five miles. (laughs) But what I need to have that freedom to be able to run 26.2 miles is I need to have a pattern of commitment in my life that enables me to get to that point. It frees me up to be able to use my body in ways that I couldn't otherwise use it. I couldn't right now for sure. It's freedom towards something good. And that's the way all of God's commands function. It's freedom toward the good. Not freedom from and restrictive. It's only freedom from sin and our desires in order to do good to us. And we so often don't think about God's commands that way. And I think that's one of the problems with the Pharisees. They were off on the wrong starting block. 
I read about a woman as I was preparing this this week, a woman, maybe some of you've heard of her. Her name is Wendy Plump. She's written a book about her life experiences, and she describes her marriage falling apart uh, in the book. And her marriage fell apart because she had an affair and her husband had an affair. And, you know, things just went awry after that. They ended up getting a divorce and all of that. Well, the culture would tell them, and you could see it if you Google her name, the the responses to her book are affirming of, you know, her freedom to have affairs, to do whatever you want to. They're very affirming of that. It's a freedom from constraints. But what Wendy said about her parents and their very stable marriage relationship is interesting. She said they have this marriage of 50 years behind them, and it is a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. Now, that's because her her parents had freedom, too. They had freedom, true freedom, of commitment to one another. And it gave their love the opportunity to blossom into the stable relationship where it's much more interesting in the long run than a few months of illicit passion and an affair. Wendy, unfortunately, I kind of feel bad for her because she's bought into the lie that the culture is telling us of freedom from. If you can just have freedom from biblical standards of sexuality, then you will really enjoy life. And that freedom from has torn her apart and left her in a very dissatisfied position. She's consumed by her desires and she's controlled by them. Not freedom to experience something good. And so all that to say, we have to keep that in mind as we respond to God's word. When God commands us something, even if initially we don't understand what's going on, it's for our good. It's for our benefit. It's for our refreshment. And he commands us things so that we can have true freedom, freedom to something. Freedom from our sinfulness and our brokenness and our enslaving desires and freedom to delight in him and to experience true joy and to experience all the good gifts that he gives to us. And I think that's what the Pharisees forgot here. They forgot that the Sabbath was given to man for refreshment and for good. And that's why Jesus clarifies the Sabbath was made for man. Now, there are guidelines and you do have to obey them, but they're made for you to do you good. It's not the opposite way around, not man for the Sabbath. Now we say, I said in the point here, that this shows Christ's authority. He's like David, but better in his authority. Well, this is an example of his authority because he's able to look at the Old Testament and the commands and go, this is the heart of it. This is what was truly intended. And this is how God desires to do us good through his word. He faithfully applies God's word and gives the true intention here in verse 27. Then in verse 28, he explains why he has that authority. Look at verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is is quite the statement here for Jesus to make. Let's pull it apart a little bit. Why does he call himself the Son of Man? Well, this is the second time he's referred to himself as the Son of Man. Look back in chapter 2 and verse 10. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. So he's linking this title of the Son of Man with authority, the right to command things, to do things. He has authority on earth to forgive sins there. So why does Jesus link this title to his authority? Well, this title is not made up out of thin air. I think we've referred to this text before, but Jesus is alluding back to Daniel 7. Daniel's getting this vision about the future, and here's what he says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of that expectation in Daniel 7, and he's claiming to have extensive authority there. But look what, look what else he says in verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's an amazing statement. He's claiming, of course, the authority to rightly interpret the Sabbath, as he's just done in verse 27. But he's claiming to be the master of the Sabbath. The Greek word for Lord here is at the beginning of the sentence, emphasizing his authority and his ability to be the Lord of the Sabbath. How significant is that? Because, as we saw earlier, the Sabbath wasn't just instituted at the The Ten Commandments was instituted all the way back in Genesis 2, the beginning of creation. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Jesus is saying here that he has the authority to put the order of the work week together in Genesis 2. He's the one that does this. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He determines what happens with the way creation is set up. One of my favorite verses, Psalm 115.3. This is what Jesus is claiming. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Just think, if Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, then what else does he have authority over? He is the master of our every day. He's the master of our time on earth, of every detail of our lives. Psalm 139.16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Jesus is master over all of that. The way creation is ordered in every detail of our lives. God has your life mapped out in every single detail. And he does that as one who is good and who is loving. He's Lord of the Sabbath, and he's Lord of your life. Now, one of my favorite verses that helps us to understand this is Romans 8, 28. The implications of this are astounding for our lives when we think about Christ as the Lord of our lives and Lord of the Sabbath. And we know that for those who love God, all things 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The breadth of that promise is amazing. That is a promise that you can stand on even in the most insane, difficult times. Because what this promise is saying is that no matter what happens in your life, difficulties, trials, even when you are sinned against, Jesus is Lord of the, of the world and of your life to the point where those difficult things, even those, he is working together for your good. Every detail of life, he is orchestrating in order to do you good. Everything, the number of hairs on your head, the spread of cancer in your body, the details of whether you have a job or not, family dynamics. I mean, this is not a, this is not a, a cliche thing to say. This is tough to wrestle through, but this is the reality. This is what we have to bank our hopes on is the goodness of our God in giving us commands and the goodness of our God in being Lord of the Sabbath and of our lives. He's ordered everything for our good. And if you keep reading in Romans, the good there is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. He works everything in our lives, the good and the bad, so that you and I will look more like Jesus Christ. That's what he does. That sounds, it sounds easy, but there are some massively difficult things that we go through. But when you go through those things, go back and think of it like Joseph did. After all his trials and difficulties, here's what he said to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Same event. The intention of Joseph's brothers was to do him harm, to sin against him. And God used that and orchestrated that for Joseph's good And for the good of others, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And ultimately, you see in the flow of Genesis that God used that event in order to keep his promises to his people. And to further the promise of Genesis 3, that one day a seed would come through the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's what God was doing behind the scenes. And he, the same God that did that, is the same God who works in our lives for the same purpose, to do us good. So here, when Jesus says that he's Lord even of the Sabbath, he's certainly claiming absolute sovereignty over creation and the way things are ordered. But ultimately, he uses that power in our lives because he loves us. And he cares for us, and he wants us to be conformed to the image of Christ, no matter what it takes, through good days and bad. That's his mission. That's his goal. And it's all done out of care and concern for us. That's the good news. (laughs) That's the good news that shapes us, right? That's what we come here to hear about on Sundays and to talk about with one another throughout the week. That's the news that changes us. And I pray that as you ponder Christ, as you think about him, it will continue to shape us and change us even as we leave this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to have the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray.
Father, these are certainly weighty things, and it's difficult to hear sometimes that even even trials, even health issues, even family struggles, all of that, Lord, fits within your plan, and you do those things out of a desire to do us good, Lord. We don't understand how it all fits together. We don't understand the details, but we do understand We do know deep in our guts that you are good and that you are God. You're powerful and you're benevolent. And you use both of those attributes every second of every day in our lives. Your desire is to make us more like your son. And you are at work doing that in a million different ways all the time, Lord. And we want to trust you in that. We want to rest in that as we go about our days on this earth the days that you oversee and that you guide for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the news that we receive about Jesus Christ. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.